So today we're going to be talking about Peter Zion, this guy who's been going around the podcast circuit lately with a new book. Um, I think that we want to kind of just, you know, present his ideas because there are things that we've talked about a lot in the past in general. So I think that we both have some like, you know, thoughts. I have a, a, a critical initial question. Is it Zion, not Zeehan? <laughs> yeah, so like at least the, the last podcast that I listened to, they, they were saying Zion for sure. I, I like listened and like paid attention Zion, to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like Zion or something. Yeah. All right, please uh, regale us. Okay, so uh, this guy has this perspective that, you know, in general, we're always kind of told that overpopulation is a bad thing. Too many people, bad for the planet, bad for us. His perspective is completely the opposite of that. And more and more people are kind of saying this general thing that depopulating at such a pace we're just about to, that it's going to have crazy negative impacts on our economies to the point where he says very drastic things like China in 10 years will cease to exist as a country because their population is going to absolutely collapse in like 10 years. They, they, they had no babies right. for like, you know, for so long and it is just going to catch up with them. And other countries across the world are going to be in similar boats. And another kind of like piece of his commentary is that uh, this is going to, I guess this is his main thesis, is that um, globalization is going to be over, you know, as we know it, um, in the fairly near future because supply chains are going to cease to exist the way that they currently do. I'm sure a lot of that is just like inherently true. It's weird that we don't talk about this much more because we already see the impacts of it. That's the crazy thing. We already yeah. see the impacts. Yep. And like, you know, we just don't talk about it. I, I kind of want to jump in with you in terms of like our commentary. Um, I, I want to sure. jump in with like the piece of um, like Bill Maher. He always talks about how he just had a huge segment on it two weeks ago. Too many people on the planet. And it's it's all bad. There's no good side to having more people. It's it's all bad that we have so many people. We need to stop having babies, et cetera, et cetera. Why why is that still the predominant talking point if what Peter Zion is saying is even remotely true? And by the way, Elon Musk and a lot of other people have uh, Zion's same talking points. I, I wonder if uh, part of it has to do with just the kind of like anecdotal experience of most people who are political commentators that they live in cities and their anecdotal experience is, is scarcity because they are so reliant on this kind of, uh, this cavalcade of systems to provide all of their necessities for them. Because I think if you're in a play, I'm in Montana right now and there's just a fucking ton of space out here, you know? And not only is there right. a ton of space, but there's, a lot of resource too, you know, there's, there's water, there's land, there's arable land, there's a lot of people farming. And I wonder if at least part of the kind of like, there's too many people um, sentiment is just being echoed from cities where people feel clustered, they feel crowded, they feel like everybody's moving in on them. And they also feel really dependent, not only on their neighbors for things, but, but on all of these kind of anonymous, um, you know, switches and levers that bring their stuff to them in some kind of weird, like Ray Bradbury short story type way. You know what I mean? 
Um, I don't know. I think that could be part of it. But then I think the other part of it that I was reflecting on last night when I was listening to him talk about demographics is that it's got to just be, um, it's not sexy to think about kind of anthropological issues in a statistical mentality. And I don't know, you know, even when ideas are solid, sometimes if they don't have the right kind of sex appeal intellectually, they don't catch hold and catch fire in the same way that somebody just rocking like a, like a deeply felt sentiment does. Do you know what I mean? Right. Totally. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think that, I think that you're right. And I, I mean, I also think that I, Bill Maher might just be behind the times a little bit and maybe five years from now he's going to change his tune. I think of myself, I was Bill Maher five, ten years ago. I always said the same things. Like, we have too many people. Like, why are we still having, why do you still see people with like five babies mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in a lot like American overpopulated quote unquote cities. Um, right. so I always said that, you know, and, and I wonder if Bill Maher just hasn't, or like, you know, his, his world, um, of like mainstream commentators, they just haven't like been introduced to these ideas yet. Um, and if they are, I, I mean, this is another thing is I would love to see more pushback on like Peter Zion's ideas. My kind of like generic critique of just like everything in this space, cause I'm not an expert, obviously I've done some reading on this, but like, yeah, neither I, this is interesting to me. People who are, uh, you know, worried about overpopulation, end of the day, they're kind of like, but it's going to be fine because technology is going to save us. People who are worried about underpopulation are also kind of like, but it's kind of okay because technology is going to save us. And right. I, I kind of want these two people to like meet in the middle and be like, okay, what technology? And let's figure it out on a time scale. Um, because meet in you the middle know, and be like, all right, we're actually fucked. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but I mean, I'm I'm a believer in that too, because I, I do think that in general, it's not gonna be politicians, it's gonna be technology. Technology moves more quickly. There's gonna be a fix to these things. I mean, for example, <clears throat> we have a, a water shortage problem in California. Well, you know, we already have the technology to, you know, do desalination. It's just not economically realistic at this moment but like the technology is there imagine if we didn't have that technology to desalinate the ocean water we'd have no backup and at some point we're being like we just need to leave the state or, or whatever especially for some like arizona you know but that technology exists and new technologies are coming online of that you know to make that more efficient pair it with nuclear energy or whatever you know israel does because they they basically just get all the water from you know, the ocean right you know, that's that's like one point and I, very similar to like the like when Peter Zion talks about his issues with supply chains. Well, I mean, you know, forever we've been talking about, you know, how these supply chains will just be easier and cheaper to recreate locally. There are specialized things like computer chips cell phone batteries, a couple things that really are, it needs a global supply chain. And I totally get that. You know, lithium ion only comes from specific places and especially like, you know, other very rare minerals, they come from specific places, they need to go to specific factories. I get that. But um, those all seem like kind of problems are gonna be solved. And since they, they, they're, they're multi-billion dollar industries, they will be solved, I think. You know, Apple's yeah. gonna get cobalt. Somehow, you know, <laughs> they're going to get it. 
Um, so those are kind of my thoughts. And like the technology piece, I think hasn't been incorporated into literally this this whole conversation at the level that it kind of should be, which is which is a a level that's like kind of point by point of where the supply chain is going to fall off. At this point in the supply chain, will technology save us? Why are we? Why not? Here are experts to debate that point. That that sort of a thing, I, I think, is is right. right missing. Yeah, I agree. And like, kind of my central, one of my real central critiques of the of the at least the beginning of the podcast was he kind of begins the podcast by saying, "Well, globalization, you know, began as this collection of thousands of individual economies, and then was manufactured in the post World War II era." mainly by the United States to try to facilitate, you know, us having what we need and that it's going to splinter back into a thousand individual economies, which I, it's interesting that you and I kind of took the same thing away from that, which was that, you know, I just don't think that that's possible anymore. I don't, I think that there is such an intense reliance on specific materials coming from specific places. I mean, he did say, you know, in the United States and places like that are allied with the United States, that we have so much resource, we have so much land, we have a lot of people, we have a really, you know, educated populace. And so we're going to maybe feel the effects of this less. But I could see exactly that where globalization in the sense that it's kind of, I guess, ethically and economically not feasible to truck an apple from Argentina so that I can have it for 99 cents at Ralph's, right. you know, that may start to become something that feels archaic and starts to feel, I mean, in a, in a, in a very real way, it's immoral, you know, I mean, we're, <clears throat> it's just strange, but stuff like important materials, you know, semiconductors, certain construction materials, certain specialized materials, there's always going to be a path from one place to another for those materials because they're so important in the infrastructure building process for everything, you know? Yeah. So I, I, that was my main kind of main pushback in the beginning of the podcast was like, okay, globalization is over. And it's like, well, not really, because eventually most things are going to be electric. A lot of that stuff is going to be nuclear wind and solar powered, even if it, you know, eventually that technology is going to get onto boats and those boats are going to be able to come across the ocean with a lot less, you know, financial and ecological impact. And we're not there yet. And if my, the older people that I talk to are right. You know, like they, they're always like, um, yeah, this shit just doesn't actually happen on the time scale that you think, you know, it's like, I just watched a movie yesterday and they were like, dude, we're going to be driving electric cars in five years. It's like 1975. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I also would kind of push back against the kind of doom and gloom around globalization with the caveat that I do think that a lot of developing countries are going to get the short end of the stick. And that was something yeah. that he was, I think, pretty sharp about, at least in my kind of inexpert opinion, where he's looking at demographic shifts, you know, in developing countries where they didn't have this huge boom generation, weren't able to produce a lot of Gen X and millennial generation folks, and are going to look at kind of having a labor collapse and economic collapse because they don't have the infrastructure like they didn't industrialize until late in the game and so you know as as everybody is transitioning to economies that are semi-local or hyper-local or whatever and just getting specialty products from abroad a lot of those places that are just now in the process of industrializing 
but they don't even they don't have the technology they don't have the information they don't have a lot of the things that they're going to need to survive in like a, a post-globalized economy that has all of the hallmarks of globalization where everybody's got cell phones and everybody's kind of doing stuff. But um, that kind of segues into my next thought, which was the demographic shift between uh, kind of boomers, Gen X, and millennials, and seeing what the skill sets are that are so different that are gonna to start to create labor shortages. Cause one of the things that he mentions in the podcast is, hey, uh, you know, we've got this right now, we've got this 40 to 60 uh, range of folks that grew up in an era. He didn't say this exactly, this is kind of what I took from it, where trade skills were more valuable, where, you know, you've got these people that are very plugged into the idea of labor as a way of life and they're highly productive, they're highly skilled, and a lot of those are hard skills. But then as we've gone through globalization and a second or third wave of industrialization in kind of like, you know, post-50s, post-World War II era, a lot of the jobs have, have switched to what he was calling value-added uh, service jobs. And I, I find that interesting too, because I'm in my restaurant right now, and there's nobody that wants to do this job. You know, everybody wants to eat, but there's a lot of people that don't want to do this job. They don't want to do a service related job because it's really hard and it doesn't pay a ton of money. There's a ceiling on pay. There's no real career in it. But we've got this whole generation of millennials and Gen Z kids that have been raised on the idea that a service industry job is maybe one of the only options you have outside of trade jobs. And I think that is gonna create a really pronounced disparity in labor, probably worldwide over the next 20 to 30 years where, I mean, service jobs are obviously gonna become automated at some point. And people who have service-oriented personalities and service-oriented kind of ec economic capacity I think are going to suffer a lot, and it and I think it's going to drag the economy in a in a I don't know I mean the way that I'm seeing it now in a bit of a downward spiral where yeah we're going to lose a lot of our tradespeople a lot of our skilled laborers a lot of the things that actually keep the economy going physical level so yeah that was just a, a thought that I had kind of on the demographic shift and what I'm seeing here where I'm at yeah I mean one thing that was interesting that he said was that. Some of these countries like China um, and, and some other countries, they industrialized too quickly. Right. And so over one generation, like half the population of China or more moved from the country to the big city. And then so like that, in an instant, they stopped having kids. There was no like kind of gradual, right. slowly, 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 we're having fewer kids. It was an overnight thing. And they haven't yet felt that hit their uh, their demographics because the people in their 60s are still working, but in the next right. 10 years, they're gone. And there's gonna be no one, I mean, it's gonna be like half as many people are gonna be able to fill those shoes. Um, I mean, I do kind of like very much sense that uh, America, like you said, is gonna be kind of fine through a lot of this because we're always so like kind of, 
generally, even though we don't talk about it, say it, we're, we're kind of okay with immigration because it, it's kind of like totally ingrained in our, our, our natural ethos, um, right. national ethos, where you know, there's a lot of talking points about like close the border, close the border. That's talking about illegal immigration. You know, right. like we love, even Fox News viewers love legal immigration. All yeah. we have to do is just like very much a teeny bit open up that door for what qualifies as legal. Everyone's happy, our population grows, and it's just a little bit of a messaging about like why we need to do that, you know, for yeah. whatever reason. Um, I do think we think too small <laughs> in America. Mm-hmm. We're a huge country. And if you just look at California, uh, like Tokyo has the, just that one city, Tokyo, the same population of the whole entire state of California. Like imagine if LA actually was semi-ambitious about like population growth and they did actually, you know, I, I, I have heard that the, the population in LA is like millions and millions and millions of people larger than it actually says on paper because there's so many undocumented people living there that yeah. who knows what the po- real population of LA is. Still, it's nowhere near, you know, the uh, 30, what is it? Uh, it's huge, the population of Tokyo. It's, it's ginormous. I, you know, forget the number. It's nowhere near that. Um, so Bill Maher has talked about that too. And he's, I, I reference Bill Maher because he's kind of like the normie take on this, you know? Yeah. But he's talked about how, like, what are we going to do about, uh, you know, too many cars, more cars on the freeways. And I, I know that this is something that uh, Matt Iglesias has talked about with his, uh, his, his book, uh, One Billion Americans. And he's kind of admitted that, yeah, traffic in LA is going to suck if LA grows. But at some level, we just need to like embrace that and then rethink the structure of the city, which is, yeah. I mean, Tokyo wouldn't be what it is if it didn't have its like amazing High metro speed stuff, trains. Yeah. You know? And there's no reason why LA at a some level couldn't do that or embrace some technology that would lighten the burn, burn the freeways. So I am optimistic for like America. And I think that we can also, you know, it's probably a good thing for us to have more infrastructure for our own supply chains than we do now. That also pleases both the left and the right. Um, so I, I think that we're going to be like, okay, but I worry so much about the rest of the world because, yeah. you know, if you look at, we talk about our homelessness crisis, but just like go on Google maps and look at like Delhi, you know, yeah, like 10 million people are basically what we would consider unsheltered, you know, living in, right. in tents, essentially. Um, I know that you've been to India and have traveled quite a bit. I mean, do you have any perspective about like how, how, you know, what a massive problem that is? Yeah, man. It's really interesting because everywhere that I've been that has, um, that has abject poverty, there's a couple, there's a couple things that are endemic to those systems that I think are, almost entirely the culprit. And I, you know, I could get flack for saying this, but a lot of the times where I'm in, I mean, I'm thinking of Mexico and I'm thinking of, uh, and I'm thinking of India specifically, but man, there is such a culture of corruption that's endemic to the political class. And you can't, I don't know if you can blame people in the same way that you could blame people for corruption here, because I think corruption here ends up being 
I don't know, more of a, more of a game, more of an exercise in, in how to become powerful and, and more, more of a hobby, I would say, uh, because you're just never really fighting for your life here unless you're in a pretty spe special circumstance. But when you're in a place where so many people are fighting for their lives, I think as soon as you get a leg up on the next guy, your kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the thing that's govern, governing your life. In those places, there is, there's such a strong corruption in the political class where the money is siphoned off at every single level because there's enough, there, there is enough resource to provide for a lot of these people. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's a generational issue or if that's a socio-political issue that is kind of a water wheel that continues to kind of draw its own water and turn itself over. I, I do have hope for younger generations because I think there's just a lot more awareness of the human condition and folks that are of our generation and, and probably Gen Z as well. So maybe, I don't know. Um, those places are pretty fucked though. And I think that a lot of those, a lot of the fuckness comes from the kind of brutal individualism that and it's like, it's, it's why there's always uh, people that want to do authoritarianism, man, because they're like, dude, these people are psycho. They just want right. to take everything for themselves. Like somebody's got to fucking be daddy, you know? Yeah. And then all these people are looking around like, dude, everybody's taking my shit. Where's daddy? You know what I mean? And uh, I guess in a roundabout way, the, the point in my mind is that in the United States, we got a really pretty great system. It's really fucked. A lot of people fall through the cracks, but the bureaucracy is spread out in such a way. I was thinking about this last night, listening to the podcast too, that um, I think a lot of the places where, you, you know, China, Russia, where there's an authoritarian presence and the idea that they're going to crumble uh, because of a mix of demographic issues, economic issues, and probably socio-political issues, uh, it makes me kind of um, it makes me kind of uh, romantic about the idea of bureaucracy, because I think one of the reasons why this country does shift, maybe not as nimble as it could, uh, but it does shift to accommodate the changing of the times in a way that is maybe just by the hair of our chinny chin chin, but it seems timely enough that everything keeps running right. And I think that's because there's such an enormous bureaucratic structure in this country where responsibility is so diffused. And there's there just isn't that in a lot of places. You know, it's like there's, especially in China and Russia, obviously you got one dude at the top and I don't think he's got demographic political scientists like on his advisory board. You know what I mean? Uh, or if he does, maybe they're just one voice. But in the American system, responsibility for how the economy moves and how the society moves and how laws move is so diffused that a lot of these opinions can filter in. And eventually, you know, through the Plinko machine of democracy, like shit actually finds a hole and we're able to kind of shift and change we do have endemic political corruption, but it's diffused over a huge amount of people, both top and bottom. And it's checked and balanced from both sides. I mean, we survived Trump, you know, 
that actually is one of the reasons why I do like really enjoy the commentary of Peter Zion, how how right he is on so many things that you know I'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I I was also just very recently on board with the talking point that. Uh, we're not talking about China enough. They're such a threat to us. Like that's the biggest right. worry that we should really be worried. And he he was saying on on a different podcast than the one we listened to, but he was saying that um, Xi Jinping is like more of a uh, dictator who's like closed off from reality than any other dictator in the world. And he was saying that like yeah. He, his advisors don't tell him anything because he's killed too many of them. So they don't tell him anything good or bad. They tell him literally nothing. And so he is right. just like in his own little shell, uh, kind right. of manipulating what he can. But like the, that system itself is is just like ready to collapse because it's it's he, you know this again Peter Zion. It's it's way more fragile than we give it credit for. And when you look at some yeah. like just basic numbers in China. It, I, I'm gonna get this this wrong, but it's it's something like only 17% of the population goes to college, and like a large percent of the population doesn't even graduate high school. We never hear about this, but I mean, you can look that up. It's like a crazy tiny fraction of their people actually like get those higher degrees and that sort of thing. And they they mostly like they very often run on just stealing intellectual property from other countries. Like right. you know, they they will send their best and the brightest to American universities. And then um, they'll get a job at Apple or Google, and then just kind of like very quietly give some info back to. And that's like a real thing. That that's not like a conspiracy yeah. theory or whatever. Um, you know, speaking of conspiracy theories, this this is a uh, actually something that I wanted to run by you. Um, yeah. You know, tangent. But uh, before I heard Peter Zion really talking about this thing about. Uh, we're at the, the best we've ever been, or maybe we peaked in like the late 90s, early 2000s. We've peaked as, as a global civilization, and that was the best we've ever going to get. It's, it's, all, it's unsustainable going downhill. Before he said that, I think the only person who I really heard make an argument for that was uh, Eric Weinstein. Oh. Remember that guy? <laughs> so, and what's interesting to that to me is that I used to really like Eric Weinstein, and I still kind of enjoy listening to him talk when he does talk because he's so goddamn articulate and it's just, he uses words in a way that like is very, you know, fun to listen to if nothing else. But what's interesting to me about this, Eric Weinstein, you know, very similar talking points on this issue to Peter Zion, but Eric made everything sound so goddamn conspiratorial. He made it really right. just like just with the, the words he chose to use and like the inflection in his voice and just like the, you know, the cynicism, like overshadowing the whole, he made it sound like a big conspiracy theory, which like kind of turned me off a little bit to it. Peter Zion is just kind of like, this is just how it is guys. You know, yeah. like here's some data here, make figure it out yourselves because this is just what's happening. And it, it really like, was fascinating to me personally on a psychological level because, you know, let's say that they're both right. Mm -hmm. Eric is going to draw a specific audience to his just way of presenting those arguments. Peter's eye on a completely different audience. And, right. you know, they can, you know, use those audiences to be either really, really, really cynical about the world and the future or to be really optimistic. Peter Zion always yeah. said 
podcasts and all of his podcasts I've listened to that he's an optimist and he lays out reasons right. why. I don't think Eric would present himself as an optimist. I think he would be more of a doomsday sayer. And I think that he would point his audience to be more like that. That to me is fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Like talking points exist, but you can, you can like manipulate your audience to, to have a view of the future of the world depending on your tone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, man, because I think Weinstein and, 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 uh, and Zion are, are both a part of a generation where I, I personally see, I mean, I deal with a lot of folks over 65 out here in Montana. Uh, and, and, you know, I have, because I run a business, I, I deal with those people all the time. I deal with a lot of those people in construction. And the, the longer I, I don't, I could, I could list off a short list of things why, but the longer I deal with these people, the more fearful and suspicious they seem. And even yesterday, my own mother uh, was like, you know, I was watching uh, the news the other day about this Trump raid and I'm like, oh, good. You know, she's hearing, she's hearing the news, right? She's hearing the, you know, she's hearing the good word. And she goes, yeah, I just think, I mean, it seems like the FBI planted those documents. Oh God! And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, I was like, no, no, man, that's not where. Who is saying that? You know what I mean? And yeah. I think that uh, this that generation is man going to enter a really dark period because I think the media that the media that is uh, that is. Um, soliciting itself to that generation is very aware of how much things have changed in the last 20 years and that there is a reasonable fear cycle built around that. There's there over the last even five to seven years, there is this huge groundswell of mistrust in the government. I mean, like, I think everybody mistrusts the government at some level intuitively because you're like, I don't know, man, I'm just a guy. I'm pretty sure I can sort shit out, you know, and, and I'm, you know, these people are no different than I am. They just climbed a different ladder, but there is this, um, boy, almost hatred and, and deep, deep fear being sown amongst people that are, you know, 50 to 75 and it's being, it's being marketed very effectively. And, I can see the conspiratorial thinking, the the kind of doom, the doom thinking really being a powerful message to people who are lower on the hierarchy of education. And even certain people that are high up on that hierarchy of education, because there is a lot of reasons to be afraid. Yeah. Um, my personal feeling uh, on it is, uh, stop being such a fucking pussy. You know what I mean? Like, like at the end of the day, we've got to push this civilization forward. You've got to push your personal life forward. You don't have a choice. If you're going to be somebody that is so invested in negativity and doom saying, just lay down your sword and die because you're a very little use to the rest of us. There is ways to take the information that people are giving you and look at it in a way that, if, if not hopeful, at least mm, aspirational, you know, and looking at, at uh, whatever thing that we're facing next, whether it's a demographic collapse or if it's political instability or whatever. I mean, we live in the future, man. There's systems, there's systems for us to communicate these ideas to each other and to power 
there's a lot more direct access to power than there's ever been. Power is now socially accountable, which it's never been, you know, power. I mean, I also think, I mean, as a, as a, to kind of, to kind of draw a bow on this, that <laughs> in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s, power was a very anonymous and very cloaked um, idea. I mean, once you got up to a certain point, the media narrative and, you know, in newspapers and television and radio, as far as it existed in the in the kind of popular culture, was so highly maintained and manicured. And you had people, you know, like fucking Harvey Weinstein that had been raping women for 20 plus years mm -hmm. and just completely getting away with it. Yeah. And, you know as boomers and Gen Xers are, are growing into their maturity and being marketed to in a much more psychological and effective way, how easy would it be to draw on this very dark past of all of the things that we've now exposed saying, hey, maybe you did trust your institutions back then, but look what was going on. You know, look at all of these things that were happening behind closed doors. The unfortunate disconnect is that they're not as seated in the reality of now, where a lot of these power structures are actually more accountable to even just social media, you know, backlash, you know, social political backlash. Like this stuff is actually bearing down on the culture in powerful and potent ways. They come from a time where it didn't, where they actually, in a lot of effective ways, were powerless. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting right. thinking about, you know, that in terms of people's individual power. I kind of agree that people have more power now uh, than ever before. Obvious reasons, the internet, you know. Right. But, um, in, yeah, in, in general, I'm, you know, not quite as concerned about, uh, like, the, the, the crazy conspiratorial factions as maybe I should be. Kind of my reasons why is that, like, Americans are fundamentally kind of lazy, there are going right. to be some packages, as we've seen, who try to, like, shoot up FBI agencies or whatever. That's already kind of happened, you know, because of the Trump thing. There's there's always going to be some fraction of wackadoos who do that. I think there were, like, nine people out there protesting or whatever, you know. it's There are those people who, like, have that time of day to do that sort of a thing. Um, but, like, most people are like your mom. Let's say they're, they're, they're the most out there wackadoo conspiratorial people ever. What's she gonna do? Like maybe vote less often? Like how, how is that gonna like screw up our country? Or or maybe she's gonna like, I don't know, watch Fox News more. Like who cares? Like that's not like harming our, our society. I do think like kind of fundamentally, again, one of my themes is that I think technology is just gonna keep on pressing on forward, even if our, you know, you know, democratic systems are clunking along with the ride. Um, this this was actually maybe my last talking point here that I wanted to bring up was that, are you familiar with uh, Aaron Bastani? No. He's this guy, he wrote this book, uh, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, a couple of years ago. Nice. Yeah, good title, right? And, Great you know, title. he has some concepts in there that, that again, are just kind of like technology is going to transform the world, whether we all like it or not, whether, you know, he's, I would love to have him like talk to Peter Zion, but like whether Peter Zion is right or not, technology is going to like keep on going forward and it's going to be crazy um, in, in a good way. He, he, you know, will argue. So he has this concept uh, that he talks about called Amari's Law. 
um, which is this idea that we tend to overestimate the effects of technology in the short run, um, but underestimate its effects in the long run. And he has this really crazy example of this that I, you know, when he talks about it, it does kind of like blow my mind. Um, I think his book opens with this, that um, in 1920, we had the automobile, we had trains, we had like a lot of like stuff from industrialization. That was around the time when we had the most horses in big cities across the world, you know? And like the big thing in London around this time was like, can London have any more people? Is London fucked because like of horse manure? You know what I mean? And all the dead horses right. that are piling up, like that was a real issue. Like this whole city is gonna be like piled up 20 foot feet high with horse manure. Like what are we gonna do? Right. We're fucked. Like, and then, you know, that was a non-issue. But if you told someone in 1920 in London, guess what, dude, five years, you're not gonna have to worry about this. All the like newspaper articles you're writing and reading about this, none of it matters. Cause guess what, technology. They would have not bought that. They would have been like, no, dude, this is the biggest. So take that and extrapolate forward. Uh, everything that we're doing right now, most of the technologies that we have in terms of, uh, you know, 3D printers, you know, nanotechnology in general, um, you know, energy, we're still like, you know, just dinking around with solar panels when like, maybe we're gonna have nuclear fusion in the next 20 years, you know, that's optimistic, but you never know. Like, we are going to have an abundance of energy where eventually, maybe it's a thousand years from now, but it's gonna no, have- Sure, yeah. We're gonna have an abundance of food, we already do. Uh, it's just like, you know, distribution is a problem. It's maybe managed, we're gonna yeah. Yeah, exactly. On and on and on, like name a thing, we're gonna have an abundance, not a, not the opposite of that. And we always kind of think in terms of scarcity. We always, always, always do. Yeah. Because like we're thinking in, in like a five or 10 year time scale, not like a 50 to 100 year time scale. And I do think that that's kind of right that like, as long as we don't fuck up our democracy, you know, world democracy so badly that the common citizen doesn't have the means to like buy the latest technology or take advantage of the fact that we have like an abundance of energy, um, which that's that's a threat, you know. But assuming we don't fuck things up that badly, the future I think is going to be better all around across the board. Whether Peter Zion is right or not, I, I like to think that that's true. Um, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Um, shoot, man. I the first thing I think about when, when you're talking about kind of technological advancement in the future is is even just my personal experience of. I mean, I have health issues, right? Not major health issues, but things that I would love to be able to afford stem cell treatments, cryotherapy. I'd love to be able to get myself in a float tank every once in a while. You know, I, I've i made my own cold dip at home or whatever, you know, but there's certain things that even at the lowest level are starting to, I have to work really hard to even get to this lower level of accessing, you know, health-related technological advancements. And that's because we have this huge medical industrial insurance-related system that is kind of suppressing um, suppressing people's ability to access certain technologies. It's such a weird double-edged sword because totally. the giant, the behemoth of, of the economy around healthcare in this country means that we have all the most advanced technology. But it also, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how the future goes forward because there is a possibility that things become more democratized, that things become more fair, 
that seems like where the internet wants to take us. If, if young people vote more, if we can get a larger percentage of the population engaged in the process of democracy, then I think we'll be okay. Uh, if we continue to have an oligarchical society or an oligarchical society, then I think we, we could be in some danger because as it, as it stands now, you know, over the last 30 years, we've seen corporate citizens being treated with a much higher degree of respect and um, generosity than any average person. And in a certain way, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. It drives the economy forward. It drives innovation. It drives all of these things. But as that culture becomes more insular and we've got, you know, Elon Musk, a weird example, but uh, and, and Jeff Bezos, also another weird example where it's like, yeah, you guys have driven these tremendous technological innovations, but you're also the richest people on earth. And you're looking towards projects that are fascinating to you. And yeah. so this enormous amount of capital isn't actually being mm, used in a way that's, that's uh, shit, societally responsible. It's being used on a pet project because somebody has yeah, a lot like of money and they want it. High-speed rail. You know, that's a problem. Right, <laughs> that's, that's man. Rather than helping that project along in California, he, like, hindered it. That's a, that's a problem. You know, that's not great. It's a huge it's a huge problem, and, and you're right. As long as democracy continues to be, as long as we don't fuck it up too bad, but the path that it's going down now is that lobbyists, corporate, you know, interests, and the, you know, the the military industrial, the the healthcare industrial, and the financial industrial complexes in this country are all really working pretty hard to continue building a wealth gap. And that is going to start to yeah, totally. make things, make things, I think, a little bit less stable. I think that's one of the reasons why you see rural America being so fearful and being so um, protective of what's going on and clinging to a past because they are starting to get boxed out. Yeah. And any, anybody that doesn't own a business is really, in, and even if you do own a small business, you're really in a delicate position, you know, wages, inflation has, you know, wages haven't kept up with inflation for 30 years. You still got yep. people out here. You still got boomers owning businesses that they're like, well, I just want to pay you 15 bucks an hour and I expect you to show up. And it's like, right. yeah, that's not actually the way that things work anymore. And so I, I do have hope for the future. I do have hope for technology. I think that we will reach some kind of peak efficiency with the availability of electricity, the availability of power in general, and it will completely change the world because it's not going to be that expensive because we've been working on it for so long. The thing that we have to be vigilant about is getting younger people involved in the democratic process and beginning to hedge and cut back the ability of corporate citizens to access the system as people, you know, right. and, and, and have the, res the type of respect that a human being deserves in the system. And I don't, I don't actually know how that ends up getting resolved because the political class is the financial class. And the, the, <laughs> you don't want to be a politician unless you have money. You don't have money unless, you know what I mean? It's just a, it's a snake eating its tail in that whole system. So my hope 
my find my closing note is my hope for the future is that there is maybe some kind of blockchain oriented system or something that lowers the barrier for voting in a way that we can take um, samples or an entire popular vote on an issue or a person and actually have somewhere close to 70 or 80 percent engagement because that's when i think we would start to see the entire system shift Quick, more quickly and more in line with what a generally reasonable idea is and not be so in the pockets of people with these special interests. Yeah, boy, that's, that's a whole nother can of worms. I have it thoughts. Is. I totally <laughs> agree. I mean, I, with all that, I, I totally agree. Those are all like big problems. Um, so I think, yeah, to, to close this out on, on, on my point, I do think that, um, I, I don't think that we've kind of like heard the last of this, this Peter Zion idea that no. underpopulation is like terrifying rather than overpopulation. And I mean, one thing that that I you know want to talk about more not not today because I'm running out of time, but just like <laughs> the the incentives to to get people to have kids, that's also like a major thing and also yeah. ties into politics. Uh, yeah. Like it is so insanely expensive. Right before this call, I dropped my daughter off at daycare, right? It's like, it's insanely expensive. And like, at the same time, people who work in childcare get paid a pittance. And that's yeah. like crazy. And that, I don't understand why childcare isn't subsidized by the government if they want people to have more than one kid ever. You know, it's insane. My thoughts, exactly. Yeah, that and was on like, my talking points. Yeah, and like, I think that like having children, whether or not, you know, politics and, and the global supply chains aside, it's it's like a, a one of the most fundamental parts of life. And I think the society has made it too challenging. Uh, yeah. I think just like really not great and hopefully something that can be fixed, but that's nothing that I think technology can fix. You know, I, I think that that's something yeah. that, unless we all have robot nannies or something, I'm not sure how that would work. That's probably never gonna happen, you know, cause it's, it's so, so nuanced taking care of a child. But uh, yeah, I, I have a kind of a, in general, healthy mix of optimism and skepticism when I get into mm -hmm. the details. But my, my broad thing is like, I, I, I do think the technology is going to be, you know, make it so that life is more, I don't know, probably, probably like easier at some level, but we were in a transition phase. Everything's like in, in its infancy, yeah. like this new world of like the internet and, and global supply chains that may or may not crumble at some level. So it's, it's, it's a weird time. We still have like tanks rolling into towns in Ukraine as if that's a thing that's like even remotely relevant in the modern world, you know? And that's, that's a sign that Russia is just dumb backwards and dying. And I don't know, we need more, more societies that are going not that direction, but in the opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, uh, we should follow this up with like another talk about some of those threads. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I kind of want to talk about like just American politics and how we're getting things right and wrong at the same time. But like, it's yeah. scary. There's a lot to talk about there. I think that maybe next time we can pick that up. I, I kind of want to actually talk about like Andrew Yang's like centrism, centrism, his, his like the forward party. To me, I used to be like on board with like a lot of his stuff. And now, like everything he's doing is just like disheartening and lame and sad and oh, dumb. No. Yeah, well, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but like that 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 like whole 
world used to be like like bring people together rather than push them apart that was like part of my solution now i'm skeptical about that so i don't know i i know that you have thoughts on that too i think maybe next time we can talk uh you know some about that like american politics you know yeah <laughs> yeah let's do american politics next time let me give you my closing overview on peter peter zay zay uh my, my closing thought is that he's probably right um, there probably is going to be a lot of shifting and collapsing in the globalist system, which is good. Uh, I think that we're going to have to move into a time where we have to, we have less options and everybody should start preparing themselves for the idea that hopefully if everything works out correctly, you won't have a hundred different cereals to choose from. You won't have 13 different types of milk to choose from. You won't have so many options because the thing you won't have from halfway across the world. You won't have apples. You won't have 15 different kinds of apples at your disposal. And you may not even have apples year round. And the idea that if you can start preparing yourself to live in a better accord with maybe not your hyper local environment, but at least your regional environment, start preparing yourself for the idea that you might want to eat things in season. You may want to know how to build some things. You may want to know some trade skills. You may want to start shifting and diversifying your labor ability away from service jobs. You know, a lot of this stuff makes a lot of sense to me. And it's stuff that I kind of have already personally kind of been preparing for for different reasons, but I can say that it served me unbelievably well to be eating more locally all of the ingredients in this restaurant come from Montana, even though I'm not from Montana, because I like that. I like the idea of supporting local businesses. The products from here are fantastic. And that's true almost everywhere. If it's not right. in your state, then it's from one state over. So, you know, get yourself into a more localized way of thinking around your food systems. Try to prepare yourself for the idea that you may not have an infinite variety of things to choose from in the future and hope for that because that will help all of us and try to be more engaged in the democratic process and i swear to god if you're a big thinker think of something that helps because that is really why we struggle in this country because we have a huge block of voters that quite frankly don't know what the fuck is going on and then we've got a huge block of people that are really, really tapped in with what the fuck is going on that refuse to vote because it's a fucking pain in the ass, man. Right. So that's my, that's my uh, kind of, uh, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best, live more local, pick up a trade skill and fucking vote. I love it, man. <laughs> hey, that, that's great. We'll, we'll pick up on a lot of that next time.